Hello, everybody. Thanks for downloading The Tully Show. I hope you are enjoying a relaxing and rewarding holiday break of some sort or another. Hope you and yours had a very Merry Christmas or whatever you are currently celebrating or not. I am very excited to bring you today's show. We'll get to that in a second. Before we do, let me remind you there is plenty more me content at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. The Tully Time weekly mini news pods music podcasts the shred shed where i teach people i have no business teaching people how to play guitar but i'm i'm doing that there anyway we're doing zoom bad movie hangouts all kinds of fun to be had for your subscription dollars at patreon.com slash mike tully see you there okay you ready to start this show Coming to you live on tape from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist and author of a book released earlier this year entitled A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, the utopian plot to liberate an American town and some bears. Hello and welcome, Matthew Hungolt hetling Hey, uh, very good to be here. Thanks for having me on The Michael Tully Show. I'm excited to have you here. I think you're the, I've done Zoom interviews at this point across the globe, but I think you're the first person I've had from this deep far east. I I like to kind of feel my geographic tendrils spreading all over the continental US and it's nice to finally have New England uh, represented here. This is an early phase of your global takeover. Yeah, it's a real early phase. <laughs> so I, I have to ask you, how does one come by such a distinctive and distinguished last name as, did I say it correctly, Hungolt's Hedling? Yeah, yeah, no, you said it like a champ. And thank Great. you for asking. No one's ever asked me that before. Uh, uh, I was born a Hetling. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife was born a Hungolt's. Uh, she she uh, was the uh, one of three daughters, and uh, my marriage to her was kind of like the family's last chance to keep the Hungolt's name alive uh, uh, in memory of her uh, departed father. And so I was very happy to step up in a progressive, modern way and say, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll burden my kids with that. Why not? I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, I, I dated a girl one time who, I don't want to say her name, but she had said a sweet last name. And I was like, if this sticks, I might just... I might just rewrite the rules here and just take that one on. No offense to my family. She's just aesthetically got the better name. And my wife um, uh, is is Japanese and has a fully Japanese first and last name. And it just strikes me as odd anytime I have to. For, for legal purposes, she is her last name is Tully. And it just doesn't flow with any any Japanese word. And I feel I almost feel bad sometimes for having legally burdened her with it's not a bad last name. It's just again, it's just aesthetics. Way to colonize your family, my I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, she moved here first. <laughs> So your book is, as I gather, enjoying a lot of word of mouth success, and that's exactly the way it came to me. A very longtime listener who has shared all sorts of useful links and news stories with me over the years named uh, James brought it to my attention. So thank you to James, and congrats 
to you on that. How did this story, which we're going to be talking about today, how did it personally come on your radar? Oh, yeah, uh, that, that is a, a, a funny little story. I was working as a reporter for my local daily newspaper uh, called The Valley News. Support, support your local uh, journalist organization. It's important. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I was doing a pretty routine story about a veteran who was having a hard time with the VA. She wanted to make her home handicap accessible. Uh, because she was disabled and they weren't doing it. So I was there kind of like reporting on her uh, efforts to uh, work against that bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, she invites me to her home. She has a lot of cats. So I'm just kind of doing chit chat uh, to to break the ice a little bit. And uh, so we start talking about her cats and she says, uh, yeah, I used to let them outside, but that was before the bears came. I thought, oh, Jeez, uh, that's, a, never... that's, a, that's, a, that's an ominous clause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, as I uh, certainly never heard that statement before, uh, and so I said, "Well, now the VA and your the accessibility of your home suddenly sound very boring. Uh, let, let's talk bears." Uh, and she started to. Uh, tell me these amazing stories about encounters that she had had with bears. Uh, And in her mind, there was kind of like a definite era of bears in her neighborhood. Uh, And so she uh, uh, really sparked my interest about that. My initial thing was just to focus on the bears. I was going to do an article for a magazine called uh, the great cat bear war of Grafton County. Uh, But as I, delved a little bit deeper and started asking other people in this town about their bear experiences. Uh, It dawned on me that something really weird and unusual was happening here and that uh, there was a, an explanation for it. And the explanation it had to do with the only other unusual thing that had ever happened in this town, which was uh, (laughs) a utopian experiment. And it's got to be such an exciting feeling. I can only imagine for for a journalist, you dream of that. You know, you, you can see what you can kind of te- feel in your bones after you've been doing it for a while. What what a thousand words looks like, and what three thousand and <laughs> and five thousand when you go, this is eighty thousand words. I'm looking at eighty thousand <laughs> words here for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I was really like, uh, my antennae were out for those really kind of like bizarre, absurd stories because I just heard this like delightful story about a guy who uh, uh, a journalist who had talked on an airplane with a guy who was like a golf ball collector and they got to talking about alligators which led to a story about a suburban woman who kept alligators in her basement (laughs) and uh, you know just kind of like spiraled into all these like bizarre directions so I was like this is that story but just bears uh, hopefully I'm not damning with faint praise to me. This is even better than basement alligators. <laughs> wow. Jeez. So let me let me share some background on the story so everyone knows what we're talking about. Feel free to interject if I have any of this wrong. The Freetown Project was a plan. This went down 15, 20 years ago, depending on where you want to source the start. A plan to take over an American town and completely eliminate its government. In 2004, they set their sights on Grafton, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, a barely populated settlement with one paved road. Their goal was to take over the local government and, as you say, turn it into a libertarian utopia. When they descended on the town, public funding for pretty much everything shrank. The fire department, the library, 
the schoolhouse, freedom-loving citizens ignored hunting laws and regulations on food disposal, critically to our story. <laughs> they built a tent city in an effort to get off the grid, the town's neighbors, gigantic, ferocious black black bears. Black bears. Smelled food and opportunity and they moved in now on the face of it this is going to remind many people of the very popular netflix documentary wild wild country have you seen that no but it's so funny uh that you mentioned that because literally the call that i had before this uh was with uh uh, somebody that i was having a a discussion about uh the rights to to this movie and Mm -hmm. or yeah to, to, to this book and they, that was their touchstone wild. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. That's your, that's your template. Yeah. If you want to talk, <laughs> look, I don't know. I don't know anything about Hollywood. I'm doing radio shows in my eight year old son's bedroom, but I heard oh. one time that the way you pitch a movie is you say it was last year's biggest movie meets last year's second biggest movie. And <laughs> what you are talking about here with this story is it's, it's Tiger King meets wild, wild country, which are the two <laughs> biggest phenomenon because it's Tiger King in the regard of, of a lot of the individual characters. And this book is chock full of characters. We'll talk about some of those. It's Wild Wild Country in the regard. I'm sure many, if not most people listening to this have seen it, where a cult tries to get away from everybody and they move into a town. But through a series of circumstances, they end up trying to take over the local government. Now, the critical difference is a cult, by definition, shares a hive mind. There's a leader at the top who's directing their actions libertarians taking over a town now you're herding cats <laughs> that, that's exactly right yeah yeah what and it's funny like that is like just this kind of common impulse both within the libertarian community uh and with kind of like visionaries in general you know just this idea i guess it's just human nature we're going to go to a place and all the shit that's in the place that we already are is not going to follow us and yes. we're going to go there and we're going to make something new and shining and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, we're not going to have dirty diapers in the house to worry about or, you know, uh, uh, traffic tickets. That's just not going to be part of our thing because our thing's going to be the way that I have it in my head. Uh, and as you say, like within the libertarian community, uh, that is not coming out of one guy's uh, head but it's very uh, kind of like grassroots and diffuse. So not only do you have a bunch of visionaries, um, each of whom is steering the car, uh, but they all have their own kind of slightly different idea of what that utopia is going to be. Uh, so the, the organizing principles are fewer, uh, which leads for, makes for more chaos, I think. That's right. And these are strong-willed individuals, each each and every one of them. Right. And and the human nature that ruined the society that we're all living in, it's a negative where we are now. It'll magically become a positive where we're going in this libertarian <laughs> utopia because human nature will be the Adam Smith-esque invisible hand that will make society naturally improve itself. That's the idea. I, I want to ask you lots of questions. I want to let you do the talking, but let me just do a little bit more. I assume most people listening to this have at least a passing knowledge of libertarianism, but since we're talking about it a whole bunch, let's make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. I would say libertarianism. It's the third biggest party in America um, to the extent 
that all these people would say that they belong to any party at all. Very similar to anarchy, really, but with far more benevolent and enlightened connotations. Uh, libertarians emphasize political freedom skeptic uh, coupled with skepticism of authority, of government. The way it was most clearly explained to me at one point was the government should fight my wars and pave my roads and they should leave me alone other than that and collect as few taxes as possible. There is this sense that this invisible hand will make a free human society self-regulate more effectively than any government ever could or would. And in the abstract, this idea sounds great. It's appealing to many people of all political stripes. After all, when you see how the government runs the DMV and the post office, how could the free market possibly be worse than that? That's the idea in a nutshell, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that sums it up really, really well. Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of people think of libertarians as like very conservative Republicans, like like Republicans diluted or, or, or you know, more so. But they actually have some progressive uh, views. You know, they, they were very early on, you know, uh, gay marriage, uh, drug mm -hmm. legalization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th those sorts of things. Um, they have mixed ideas on uh, immigration. Uh, you know, so, so, some uh, some are very pro-immigration. Uh, and so they don't fit into that Republican box very cleanly. Um, and the other kind of interesting thing about them is that, uh, as I mentioned in the book, personality tests show that they are actually more logical than either Republicans or Democrats. You know, that they... Uh, and I think maybe this is partly just because of the, the type of people that that philosophy tends to attract, um, but they and, and partly because they didn't have any kind of like practical real world example of their government in action. And so, you know, there's a lot of like abstract thinking and a lot of like logic chains. And sometimes those lead to bizarre places. But, you know, to introduce rational thinking into your uh your daily living that is uh that sounds good that I, I want to aspire to that um and to have someone who's talking about individual freedoms and liberty uh liberty you know those are fundamental values i i share those values i want that yes. in my, my public discussion too but when you just kind of say that the free market is going to solve everything uh, yeah, that that's your answer to everything is just such a such a misguided application of those ideas. You know, like they they would like very much for the free market to be the answer to healthcare and education and climate change, uh, but it is just demonstrably not. Yeah, climate change would seem like a particular Achilles heel of because uh, people's. <laughs> Business self-interest and personal self-interest in the here and now does not lend itself to collectively thinking about the world of tomorrow. They're they're just fundamentally at odds with one another. Yeah, you know, there's a sense. You know, I, I think what they believe when they talk about free market solutions is that people will be able to accurately price in the costs of actions. You know that that you know that people will make good judgments. But something like climate change is just so abstract. It's so difficult to get your head around. Uh, and there's also this sense of like, well, if I change and I act in a, a responsible way, that's not really going to do anything because, you know, you really need those kind of like global collective solutions and changes. And if you go too far to solve climate change on your own, you're disadvantaging yourself 
uh, as compared to your neighbors. That's right. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of the actual story from uh, Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. So there has been, leading up to the events you describe in the book, there's a community of libertarians who are communicating with each other, I assume, I assume online is how this yeah, community starts to Yeah, mostly like forums and yeah, that, that sort of thing, conferences. And yeah, and as I mentioned, like one of these problems is that they, they don't have a, a concrete example of their government. Right. They, they've never been in charge of a nation or a state or even a city. And so this this discussion uh, kind of caught fire where a lot of them said, oh, well, what if we had this kind of shining jewel that we could show everybody what libertarian mm-hmm. principles look like in action? Let's all get together. Uh, we'll go and we'll create we'll build this utopian libertarian society and then the world will see how right we are. Right. And then they settle on, they look at a whole bunch of different places, but they settle on New Hampshire. And this was not a random choice. As you point out in the book, this town, Grafton, tried to secede from the Union of the United States, literally from the moment there was a Union of the United States. Yeah, the the day the first tax bill came to Grafton, (laughs) (laughs) they said, isn't this what we got the British out of here for? Well, what do you mean, Continental Congress? Uh, Yeah. Uh, WTF. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they actually voted to secede from the United States uh, and then uh, wanted to join Vermont instead. And at that point, in, in, yeah, in a series of poorly worded statements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And poorly, and poorly spelled. Yeah, they're, they're like living in the woods. They've been fighting bears and wolves. <laughs> uh, uh, grammar is not high on their priority list. <laughs> no. Uh, so, so, yeah, they, they uh, uh, they're like writing letters to their new government saying like, we don't want to pay taxes, but it's like, yeah, like the, the grammar and the spelling are horrendous. They're barely legible. Um, and then Vermont basically says, Hey, if you come and join us, we don't have any taxes. We're, we're funding our new Republic. Yeah. Because they were independent from the United States back, back in those days. If you join us, uh, we're, we're just funding everything by uh, seizing uh, the stuff from the British people, yeah, the, the British holdings. and From the Tories. Yeah, the Tories. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you, you won't have to worry about taxes if you come to us. And Grafton was smitten. So we all know, you know, New Hampshire, you're talking about the whole live free or die uh, credo. To what extent? I'm going to ask you a question that I know it's hard for any one person to to answer. To what extent do you think that is and is not naturally a libertarian way of thinking, the whole live free or die thing? Nowadays, that phrase sounds very, very red-leaning, but New Hampshire has actually gone blue for at least 20 years. To an outsider, how do you or would you describe the state's overall politics? Yeah, I mean, New Hampshire is a really interesting case because— Yes. Uh, because of its position as first in the nation, you know, primaries and all that, they're just deluged with candidates like all the time. Like, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's right. Yeah. Them in Iowa. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Them in Iowa. And, and so, like, there's a really high level of engagement among the citizenry. Mm-hmm. And another thing that is uh, not unique to New Hampshire, but uh, more so to the region is like they have town meetings to sort things out. Yeah. You know? So, like, when they have big town business, they actually go in this participatory uh, uh, democracy 
where they all go to a town meeting hall and literally everybody puts up hands or, you know, uh, votes on the major matters before the town. So there's this real sense of like ownership of government. You know, they, they go to the grocery stores with their state legislators. Um, uh, there's, there's a, a real like kind of like small town uh, democratic feeling, but part and parcel of that is that feeling of citizen kind of like empowerment and, uh, yeah, like, like this idea of live free, free or die, where they want to be left alone to to a, a great extent. Uh, I, I mentioned in the book that like uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness tried to change his license plate so that instead of saying live free or die, it just said live free. He covered up or die and they threw him in jail. They said, oh, no, <laughs> that, that, that won't do. Um, Which is deeply ironic. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> live free or go to jail right 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 um and so yeah even though they're they're very like um yeah kind of like big and dramatic words uh a lot of libertarians find them to be very inspiring and so even though i would argue that uh live free or die can be applied to a lot of different uh, uh political leanings i think uh they can really see themselves reflected in that phrase and, and take ownership of it. So that explains why this movement zeroed in on the state, specifically on the town or area of Grafton and Grafton County. Seems like it has a whole heck of a lot to do with a guy, I'm going to mispronounce his name, John Barbiars? Uh, Babiars. Babiars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, they interviewed a bunch of towns. And they drove around to, I, I think, two dozen towns or so in New Hampshire, uh, what appealed to them in Grafton was that, yeah, A, John Babiars lived there. He was a firefighter in the town. Uh, he was a libertarian and had, in fact, run for the uh, governorship of New Hampshire uh, and done quite well by libertarian standards. Um, and so he was kind of like a touchstone for them. And he said, yeah, come on in. You know, the, uh, we would love you here. And another thing that was appealing about Grafton was that it had a lot of land, so they could buy land for very cheaply. And even more importantly, it had no zoning regulations. And so that meant that if you're a libertarian who was willing to just kind of uh, on a whim move to a small community in New Hampshire, you may not be the kind of guy who has a nine to five job and a family and a house uh, that to that you could sell to finance your move, uh, you're going to be looking for more kind of like uh, transitional digs. And so if there's no zoning, then you can live in a yurt or a shipping container or a mobile home or a tent uh, or a cabin that you build yourself while you're waiting uh, for, for, the, for a better living situation to come along. So critically, the townspeople did not get any formal heads up that they were ground zero for a grand political experiment and that essentially a coup of their local government was underway, correct? That, that's right, yes. Someone in town noticed that there was a website uh, that <laughs> the libertarians had put up uh, calling it the Freetown Project and explaining in the most extreme terms possible yes. <laughs> that they plan to... Uh, assert their right to traffic organs, <laughs> uh, 
conduct bum fights, yeah, which is you know, <laughs> paying uh, indigent people to, to beat each other up, gladiator style. And you're not exaggerating. This is oh, literally. <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you about this. This. Larry Pendarvis. Now, to almost everybody who listens to this show, I had a former coworker and friend uh, who shares the name, the unusual last name Pendarvis. So this is really <laughs> going to strike a chord. It's two, two Pendarvises I've ever heard of in my <laughs> entire life. Right. So he is, uh, and some of the things that he believes in are not crazy at all. For example, making the point, why should I, as a taxpayer, bear the responsibility to pay for someone else's child to go to public school? That's cool. thought provoking and an argument that one could could definitely make. Right. But um, the phrase consensual cannibalism <laughs> comes up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Larry Fendarvis, uh, who was going under the pseudonym Zach Bass at the time. Yes. Uh, because he didn't, you know, presumably because he didn't want to be linked to some child pornography charges that uh, he had faced in his home state of Florida. Uh, he was a real peach. Uh, he came in, he was a mail order bride business owner. Um, and he was, yeah, asserting all of these very extreme things, including consensual cannibalism. Yeah, like the idea that, uh, yeah, well, you, you know what that is. Uh, and so he, like, was just kind of like the gasoline on the fire because he had this kind of like, you know, you, you see it in all sorts of political philosophies. The person who's like, no, I'm going to tell it like it is, and this is what it is. And, you know, that kind of like creates a space for other people to be maybe a little more moderate sometimes. But for that person... Uh, they're they're just lightning rods, and you know he would say, you know, I'm in charge of women, or I'm I'm in favor of women's rights, uh, and by that he meant mostly the right to sell sex and uh, go topless in public. Uh, but uh, yeah, I know he 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 was uh, he, he was not well regarded uh, in the town of Grafton. He he was not well loved uh, by the citizenry. They really focused a lot of their anger and pushback on him. Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of people who, you know, we probably all got a buddy who is logical to a fault who will get a couple Sam Adams at him and start telling you about libertarianism. The guy who decides to up and move to a new town and start a libertarian republic, if if anything could be so called, is pretty much guaranteed to be a zealot. It's not going to be a moderate libertarian that's willing to uproot themselves. Um, I don't. There are not a lot of women involved in this story in in general. So you say probably no one really knows the number, but a couple hundred hardcore libertarians moved to town. Do we have any idea what the sort of gender breakdown of those people was? We don't really. Uh, the only thing that I was able to get that carried any sort of weight was looking at the census figures. Yeah. And, you know, before the Freetown Project, the town was roughly 50-50 men and women. Uh, after the Freetown Project... There was a huge male uh, uh, dominance. You know, there, there were way more men than women. And that was even more true uh, among young people. So, like, you know, typically, you know, we're used to women outliving men and there being kind of like more older women than uh, elderly men in, in a town. But here, you know, like among the like 20 to 30 year olds, uh, there were, you know, like three men for every woman. And these were the guys who were really kind of like the lifeblood of the movement uh, and the people who had the, the kind of like uh, fortitude and energy to go hammer at, uh, on crazy doors uh, until they opened. The one other name that 
uh, struck me from the book that we haven't touched on yet. Tell us a little bit about John Connell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and his name, uh, oddly enough, is pronounced Connell. Okay. Uh, but he was a factory worker in Massachusetts. He worked for a company called Stahl Chemical. Uh, he had been injured uh, while responding to a fire going above and beyond the line of duty uh, at the chemical factory. Uh, He put in decades of work there, retired, came to Grafton as part of the Freetown project and cashed in his pension fund to buy a beautiful historic church that was kind of like, you know, just the, the jewel in the, the town's uh, uh, history. You know, this was like a, a 200 plus year old building where in, just in, a, for, in, a, in a very modest downtown and a very, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. The only architectural architecturally interesting building in the whole town uh, and generations of Graftonites have gone there and gotten married there. Uh, you know, been laid to, you know, had funeral rites said there it's like a sacred, precious place. Uh, and John Connell came in and uh, the congregation that had occupied it for uh, many years left. Uh, and he bought it for like a pittance for $68,000. He bought this beautiful, quaint, traditional New England church with you know, the, the bell tower and all of that. And he immediately said... I'm going to run this as a church. I'm now a pastor and therefore I don't have to pay taxes. And the town immediately got into an argument with him over whether or not he had to pay taxes on this property. Uh, And that was a storyline that kind of like escalated and played out over the course of the book. So did he actually operate as in any sort of religious or quasi religious function, or was that just something he did as a tax dodge? And he, he was a deeply principled guy and he was a deeply spiritual guy. Uh, so, you know, he, he spoke with God. He didn't have any religious formal training, but he read a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of religious texts. Uh, it wasn't like uh, super dogmatic, you know, he would like incorporate, other schools of spiritual thought into his teachings. And he held like a a sort of a a service on Sundays. Uh, And he tried to do things like uh, run a food pantry and, and feed uh, people Thanksgiving dinners and, and that sort of thing. So he had some sincere, there was a lot of sincerity to what he wanted to do, but, as much as he was a religious person, he was also a deeply political person. And so his religious teachings were also necessarily political and about freedom and individual rights and liberties and those sorts of things. And the blending of those two combined with his lack of formal training is what led a lot of people to call bullshit and say, no, you're, you're just trying to dodge taxes. The libertarians of the Freetown project never actually outnumbered the townspeople that were already there in Grafton. This seems I know that there were a finite number of places they could have considered, but this seems like that should have been one of the major factors in the town they chose to take over. That was one of the fundamental flaws in the plan. No, that they never actually could just get in and vote everybody out. 
Well, yes and no. Like they couldn't, they didn't have the numbers to take to take over the town entirely. And a lot of people in town were very uh, much opposed to them. You know, they, they because of their flamethrowing rhetoric, uh, a lot of people were, were just dead set against them from the start. But, you know, so what that meant was that when they put out a proposal that was like purely of appeal to libertarians, like say, for example, we're going to declare... Grafton, a United Nations free zone, uh, that was not going to fly. Uh, and uh, and in fact, uh, some guy in, in the, the town, like a longstanding citizen, amended their motion to do that, uh, to, to replace United Nations with SpongeBob SquarePants. So uh, the actual motion that came to the floor was whether or not to make it a SpongeBob SquarePants free zone. Uh, <laughs> but uh they when they propose something like cutting services cutting tax dollars saving money getting rid of rules and regulations uh those are at the core of the libertarian philosophy but they're also of great appeal to conservative republicans and even some democrats who uh in the yankee tradition are very thrifty and against the idea of uh, government wasteful spending and so even though they didn't dominate the town, they found enough allies within the town to make a lot of their cost cutting and regulation cutting measures go through. Okay, so we're going to get to the Bears shortly. But first, which of their goals would you say they accomplished? Um, which did they not accomplish? And how long did whatever transformation they were able to enact, how long did it take for that to play out? Well, over the course of about 10 years, they started in 2004. Over the course of 10 years, they achieved a lot of victories, such as uh, they got the town's streetlights shut off because they didn't want to pay for the electricity to run the streetlights. Uh, they managed to sue the town on a variety of causes, and they weren't necessarily successful, but what they wanted to do was to tie up the town's officials so that the town couldn't go out and enforce against them in any significant way. Uh, they managed to choke off the police budget so thoroughly that the town's one full-time police officer had to get up at a town meeting and say uh, his work had been impacted because he couldn't afford to pay for repairs to his police cruiser. And so he hadn't been able to put it on the road for a period of months. That's right. They basically they invented defunding the police 15 years early. <laughs> they invented defunding the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And implemented it far more successfully than, than we're seeing uh, in most places. Um, and so uh, they tried to launch, they kind of envisioned that like this free market uh, commerce, entrepreneurial commerce was going to emerge and flourish. Uh, that was a huge fail. You know, they, they tried to do like a farmer's market type thing. Uh, they tried to do like uh, uh, like bartering of goods and stuff. And, you know, there would be individual transactions, but there was never really like a business. And one guy actually convinced a bunch of other libertarians to build a restaurant. And the great thing about this restaurant was that it wasn't going to be regulated. I wasn't going to have to follow any of the state rules about uh, food preparation or sales or uh, selling. And that idea lasted uh, exactly as long as it took for the state of New Hampshire to notice it and come in and, and shut it down. 
So like, yeah, they, they were never able to really get those sorts of things off the ground. That leads me to my next question. What did just one town over think about all this? It was there one town over. I, I know that this is so coastist of me to say, <laughs> but reading this book, I've never seen uh, The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, but that's what I'm picturing <laughs> is a town surrounded by trees. Yeah, I mean, really like uh, within the within the town, there are a couple of what you would think of as neighborhoods. You know, places where if you're standing on your front porch, you can see your neighbor's front porch. But the majority of the townspeople lived uh, kind of scattered off in the woods. So, yeah, think of these long wooded roads uh, and every, you know, mile or so there's a house on the right or a house on the left. Like that that's the, the sort of uh, physical fabric uh, of what the town looks like. Um, and so... Uh, eh, you had kind of like this uh, chain of armed camps that emerged uh, of people in even less traditional living situations. Um, the the fabric of the town started to unravel pretty quickly. Like the number of neighbor complaints went up, recycling rates went down. Uh, the town had never had a murder in living memory, uh, but there was a roommate dispute uh, when one person accused a roommate of being a freeloader and the accused freeloader shot and killed his roommate. And that was followed immediately by the second murder in Grafton in living memory when the same guy shot his other roommate. Uh, so there were all sorts of kind of like bad things uh, that, that were happening. And I, I may have forgotten your question. Just basically what was the, if you're living one town over from Grafton, oh, are you, right, right, are you, right. are you, are you aware of this? Are you taking action? What, what's going on? What are you thinking about this? Yeah. So, so uh, there are towns surrounding Grafton. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they're, they're uh, each have their own kind of history and, and sense of community and all that. One in particular is named Canaan. Uh, and Canaan and Grafton in the 1800s were virtually identical in terms of like population and economic position. Over the years, Grafton, which always considered the United States to be a little bit of like a, a domineering invasive force, was always cutting taxes as much as it could. And Canaan was always, you know, thrifty, but always just a little bit more willing to spend money on its public services. And so that multiplied out throughout the decades and, and generations so that over time, Canaan grew and Grafton did not. Its population was very stagnant. Uh, and that ironically meant that eventually Canaan had more purchasing power for its public services because the tax burden was spread out over more people. Uh, and so what the impact of that was uh, on Canaan is that you know, flash forward a couple hundred years and Grafton has a fire station that it only spends maybe $20,000 a year on, whereas Canaan has a fire station that it can afford to spend $200,000 a year on. And so when there is a fire in Grafton, Grafton might not be able to muster a fire truck uh, to go uh, put that fire out. Uh, in fact, they uh, sometimes had fires, and while they had volunteers in the fire station, maybe none of those volunteers were certified and qualified to drive the fire truck. So they would have to call the fire chief, who by that time was John Babiars, 
who would then have to drop whatever he was doing, maybe come from out of town to come drive the fire truck to the site of the fire. So they leaned on Canaan to send its fire trucks down to Grafton to put out Grafton's fire. So Canaan literally got stuck carrying some of Grafton's water. I see. So we've talked about the libertarians now on to the bears. So bears have historically been there. And as long as as old as as far back as historical accounts go, bears come up. There's some incredibly grisly stuff up to and including an eight year old child being dragged off and murdered at one point by a bear that having been said bear attacks were rare in living memory in the town. And then that starts to change. How and why do bears become a part of the town again? Yeah, bears, which had been such a problem during the frontier days and, and uh, had that attack that you mentioned and some of the grizzly, you know, uh, tooth and claw fighting between uh, pri- primates and bears. Uh, but once the settlers kind of like cleared away all the woods and turned it into an agricultural economy, the bears kind of went away. And so at the time the Freetown Project began, there had not been a wild bear attack in the whole state of New Hampshire for like 100 to 150 years. Uh, But we've mentioned these people living in the woods (laughs) and they're living in weird situations. And each person is handling their own food storage and their food waste in their own way. Uh, They're asserting their individual rights to do that. Right. And so... What happened was the bears, uh, and I should also say bears are very smart animals, right? Uh, And adaptive. They're very adaptive, right? Like a lot of animals, they run more or less on instinct. You know, like a bird is going to do what a bird is going to do regardless of the world that it's in. And it's going to live or die, you know, based on those those instincts. Bears are really smart. They have a lot of gray matter. They're problem solvers. Um... A lot of people think that they are actually smarter than great apes, you know, that if they had fingers, they could sign better than Coco the gorilla uh, and they can count higher than great apes and they can use tools and have like their own uh, social system and, and social hierarchy and, and all sorts of stuff that make them very smart. So what the Freetowners taught Grafton's bears was that every domicile, Every house and residence and yurt and shipping container was like a puzzle box. And if the bears solved that puzzle box, they got the food inside. Uh, And because nothing was standard uh, and the punishment or the risk in going after the calories in these houses was also uh, not standardized. You know, some people were, repelling the bears with booby traps, some with electric fences, some with, uh, they put cayenne pepper on their food. Uh, you know, some were throwing firecrackers at the bears. So they were each also kind of like scaring the bears away in their own way. And that also trained the bears that, hey, you might meet a little resistance, but stick with it. The food is there. We can smell it. And there's at least one woman who's actively feeding them. That's right. That's right. In addition to all this unintentional training of the bears, uh, (laughs) a lot of libertarians, not a lot, but a handful of libertarians, enough libertarians uh, are asserting their right to feed the bears intentionally just for the pleasure of watching them eat. 
And so they are setting out food. And the book focuses on our, our example of that is a delightful elderly woman named Donut Lady. Uh, and Donut Lady uh, totters out there every day with two full buckets of grain topped with sugared donuts. And there is a pack of bears waiting for her uh, at their assigned feeding place, like dogs crowding the food dish. And she would kind of go out right among them, be within inches of them and put the grain and the donuts down and kind of like shoo them off, go away, go away. And uh, as soon as she gave uh, them a little bit of space, they would rush in and start eating the grain. And she would do that twice a day, like clockwork. And so those bears certainly got very human uh, comfortable. Uh, and all of the bears start to just in general, get more bold and more aggressive and find out that they can they can solve this human problem. And they don't limit that activity to the libertarians. This obviously is going to affect the townspeople who had been living here before the libertarians came to town. Correct, correct. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Donut Lady herself was a longtime resident. She had uh, libertarian friends and leanings, but I don't believe that she identifies as a libertarian herself. Um, but yeah, so they're they're teaching the bears kind of a, this more generalized lesson uh, about what the humans can do. Also, another kind of component of this is that the in most places, if you have a problem bear, you call your fish and game authorities or you call your wildlife officials and they will send someone out to come out and kind of like assess what's going on. And if the problem bear is too aggressive or is thought to be a threat, they will either trap it or shoot it and remove it from the population. Uh, but in Grafton, part of the anti-government lean meant that they were very unlikely to drop that dime. You know, they, they would not make that phone call. And uh, so the bear problems were just allowed to kind of continue uh, not addressed by a professional. So what is the pinnacle of the bear issue? How bad does it get? Yeah, I mean, it gets uh, quite bad. Uh, there's a woman uh, who is not a libertarian. She is uh, lets her dog out late one night, uh, 10 o'clock or so. And when she opens the door of her remote mobile home, uh, she finds that her porch is, in her words, just full of bear. Uh, there are three bears on her porch. And the dog shoots out there. Uh, two of the bears are fully grown cubs, so they run away. But the dog starts to fight with his mother bear and the woman goes out and starts screaming uh, to try to get uh, her dog inside and the bear to go away. And the bear attacks her um, and she became the uh, victim of the first bear attack in the state for you know at least a century. And so she uh, escaped with uh, she, she was pretty badly injured. But she, she did uh, live and got out, and she was fine. Uh, but that was not the only bear attack. Uh, a couple years later, in a neighboring town, uh, but within a bear's territory of Grafton, bear, uh, a woman wheels her wheelchair out of her bedroom because she hears something going on in her kitchen at 3 in the morning. There's a bear in her kitchen. And she sits very quietly, hoping the bear will go away. But instead, the bear tears half of the skin off of her face uh, and, you know, very seriously injures her. Uh, and the bear gets away. Uh, but she luckily, fortunately lived and had a very positive, strong attitude about the whole thing. 
Um, and since the book was written, there's actually been a third bear attack uh, also in the same little corner of the state. And so now this is three and I'm sure more will come. So that's the legacy of this uh, Freetown experiment, ultimately. I don't want you to give away everything from the book, but in general terms, what is the end game of this project? I know that eventually they turn on John Babiars, if I'm saying that correctly now. right? Every revolution consumes its father, and he is no exception. <laughs> that's right. That's right. John Babiars, uh, who as fire chief and as a politician who had actually gone out and uh, – mixed with the general population uh, in talking about libertarian principles and, and had one foot in reality, he eventually uh, got into conflict with the libertarians that he invited in simply for trying to do his job as fire chief and try, trying to get them to observe state fire codes. Uh, so that led to a lot of conflict. That kind of took some of the sauce out of the movement. Uh, John Connell who had come in and taken over the town's uh, uh, church, he got into an ownership dispute because in order to evade the town's tax laws, he decided to give the church to a group of libertarians so that they could handle the tax issues and he could just keep living his idealistic life. That uh, fell out pretty off in an awful manner and there was a lot of uh, fighting and tragedy there. Uh, and... Then also the landscape changed because uh, the libertarian community writ large launched what is called the Free State Project. Ah, uh, the Free State Project was, you know, not not the same people, uh, but a similar idea where a more professional group of libertarians sought to make the whole state of New Hampshire a social experiment for libertarians and invited roughly 20,000 libertarians to come to the state and start working on a grander scale. And because uh, libertarians were now being encouraged to move to any town in New Hampshire, uh, instead of Grafton being kind of like the sole landing spot, uh, libertarians now had a choice of where to move. And why in the hell would they go to Grafton with all these bears and, <laughs> and other problems? They, they so, could go to some place where the streetlights were on. That's right. And the bears hadn't sniffed out the food yet. <laughs> that's right. So the story is really interesting on at least two levels, one in and of itself, but on the deeper level, it's just an illustrative example of what happens. And, and this is where there's definitely contemporary re resonance when you take political ideology that sounds great on chat forums or on twitter or on parlor or whatever and then you try to bring it into the real world it it, it is inevitably going to collide headfirst with reality and basically theories theories are nice but we all have to live in the real world yeah not not only that uh and, and there you know history is littered with Utopian social experiments. That's right. Which have gone well. Uh, you know, one uh, kind of fun example is uh, uh, Henry Ford, the, the creator of the Ford, the Model T Ford vehicle, fantastically wealthy in his day, decides to create Fordlandia, uh, a community in South America. And that uh, he, he was going to run that, you know, in all sorts of idealistic ways. And even with his resources, it just collapsed. And the one that you mentioned before, the wild, wild country uh, 
uh, town. That collapsed. They all collapse because they're all uh, trying to, I don't know, do something very artificial and simple to what's ultimately an organic and messy and complicated process. So A, utopian experiments always fail. B, uh, the libertarian philosophy in particular is not well suited for this because it's based on the idea of compromise. You know, like uh, you, whenever you're going to start a community or to participate in uh, a civic uh, region, you know, whenever you're you're going to to get involved with governance, you're going to come up against members of other political beliefs and philosophies, and I feel that libertarians are so idealistic that they have a harder time coming to compromise with the the two party system with either side, and you know they're so idealistic that it just takes them out of the realm of practicality. But the reverse side of that lesson is that uh, those who are more civic minded, those who are more government uh, supportive, uh, those who like the services that we get from taxes, we have to acknowledge that a not very small percentage of our citizens are not on board with the institutions that we have. You know, we talked earlier about climate change. Bears are kind of like the same issue. It was a community-wide problem that was being contributed to by a bunch of different individuals and collective action was needed to iron it out. But the government's response to the Freetown project and the bears, uh, the bear situation there was basically just to say, well, hey, you know, we have an educational campaign. We're telling them the right thing to do and they're just not doing it. And that might make the government feel good. And it might make me as a, a progressive feel good to just say, oh, well, they they should know better. You know, uh, they, they got to get with the program. That's not working. Uh, so we have to come to grips with the fact that there are large numbers of American citizens who are not on board with these ideas. And we have to do a better job of uh, negotiating uh, uh, the, the right solution that's palatable to everybody. It's a it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating book. I have no doubt it is going to be before too long. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating mini series that's going to be streaming somewhere. But before I let you go, a completely different subject. I saw that your work took you to Sierra Leone. Yeah, you yeah. are, to, to the best of my knowledge, the only person I've ever met who has been to Sierra Leone. So, in a couple minutes, tell me everything. <laughs> well, you uh when I went to Sierra Leone, it was my first time off the continent. And so I fell way out of my element. Uh, the, the, uh, just the, the heat and the difference in culture alone was just like mind boggling to me. Uh, but, uh, what I found out there, th this was in the, the wake of the Ebola, uh, pandemic. And at the time, the storyline in the United States was, the people in Sierra Leone are so stupid uh, that when the medical doctors come to them trying to help them with Ebola, they're like running away into the into the woods or, or the brush. And uh, what that didn't really appreciate was that there was a strong culture in Sierra Leone uh, of turning to like traditional healers. And those traditional healers often 
solve the community's problems by putting their hands on people. And so they had become kind of like inadvertent spreaders of Ebola. And so when Western doctors went in and started identifying some of the most revered people within these communities of being the problem, uh, it was a very heavy handed, uh, very stupid uh, approach. And that just didn't work at all. But when I was there, I had a blast. The people were delightful. Uh, the, the, uh, the, there were scary spiders and, uh, leopards, uh, but, but my, <laughs> the friends that I made there were just so generous, uh, w- with their time and, and attention and spirit. And, uh, they, they carried me through and introduced me to, uh, some spiritual leaders and, and uh, uh, white magic doctors. Uh, and it was, uh, it was fantastic. That sounds awesome. All right, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. Your name, again, is Matthew Hungolt Hetling, and the book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. This is great. <laughs>